welcome to Be There Done That, a Catholic history podcast with Lillian Jake. And today, after a very long period of wait, we um, will be talking about the Catholics of Nagasaki um, and the bombing that happened in August 9th of 1945. The roadmap for our conversation is going to be um, basically two big areas of background. One is the beginning of the Catholic community in Japan at, at Nagasaki um, in starting in the 16th century. And then we'll talk kind of about the buildup of Japan to World War II, which is obviously like the immediate context of the bombing. Then we'll talk about the, the day of the bombing, August 9th, 1945. And then um, we will go kind of into, I guess we'd call it aftermath or sort of the, yeah. the social sort of struggle fallout that happens. Um, for the the community the people that survive and if you hear a lot of like grunting and cooing and (laughs) all kinds of baby noises in the background it's It's because there's a baby yeah Yeah, there's a baby here so that's why that's part of the reason aside from our great scholarly dedication to research um as we prepare these episodes that we also had another baby so welcome new baby Just for reference, Nagasaki is located in the uh, southern part of Japan, in the southern islands that are close to South Korea and China, which gives it great access to um, seaports and trade. Because of that, that's where the explorers hit first. Um, And with that, of course, came the missionaries. And you said you wanted to give specific dates about when the missionaries Well, just... So some specific dates, just so you're oriented. 1549 is when St. Francis Xavier arrives in Japan, and um, he is in the Nagasaki area. And that So Nagasaki becomes the heartland of Japanese Christianity, um, really, for from then on. And in 1587, persecution of Japanese Christians begins. And I think it's at, a little bit later, after like 1630 or something, the Christian community, which is much smaller by that point, goes underground and kind of gets lost to outside Christianity, outside Catholic Church and the larger world for like 200 years. Later, when Japan kind of opens up again um, in the 18, like 60s, Japan opens up to outside influence again. Foreigners are allowed back in. And French um, priests are allowed to build a church at Nagasaki for really the foreign community, but the they're kind of wondering if the hidden Christians are still there. So the Japanese Christians who are there in secret, they were waiting to see certain signs before they would come out of hiding, and they thought that they would see three things. That the real church would come back and it'd have celibate priests, that they would have um, like images of the Virgin Mary, and that they would be uh, obedient to the Pope in Rome. I think they called him Papa Sama. Um, so they, th- these are they're looking for a, a specific kind of church before they would ri- like risk coming out of hiding. So they they can kind of tell that you know okay this priest doesn't have a wife. They hear that there's a Mary statue or someone goes in and sees a, a an image of the, of the Virgin Mary, and they debate whether they're going to come out of hiding or not. And eventually, a group of women decide you know forget it. We're you guys are being too hesitant. We're going to come out and and uh, confront this this priest and reveal ourselves so they go and um this priest is really surprised and from there though unfortunately um they kind of misjudge the moment and even though yeah so persecution start again for the japanese christians or the japanese catholics um at this point and so there's a couple of years there, right? Like a couple decades of them. I think it, the actual persecution only takes a couple years and that they are, I mean, I think there's some permanent impact from them being like dispersed around the country. They get basically like uprooted from Nagasaki area. And then when there's sort of an international outcry, Japan decides they're going to have religious toleration and then they're allowed to go back. But it wasn't really like fully until like the 20th century that they have religious tolerance for them i'm not sure 
this is, I mean, whatever it is, it's at the, it's towards the very end of the 19th century here. We're in the latter half, like 1870s. Yeah. Those people's kind of children, grandchildren are the ones who are going to build beginning, I think in like 1914 to finishing at 1925, the cathedral that's going to be in the area where these Christians historically lived called Urakami. It's called the valley, the valley there is called Urakami. I think there was a village that gets kind of absorbed into being, it becomes kind of like a suburb of, yeah. of Nagasaki proper. Mm-hmm. And Nagasaki, as we mentioned, is like a port. So it's kind of, it's further down towards the water. And I think north of it stemming off is this valley. And so the cathedral there is called Immaculate Conception Cathedral. There's still a church there, but it's not the one that was around at the time of the bombing, as we'll describe. Any other background as far as the kind of foundations of the Christian community? No, I mean, there is a novel and a movie out that most people have heard of, which is Silence, which we both watched. Yeah, Silence, that's by, um, the the novel's by a Catholic author named Shusaku Endo. It is historical fiction. Um, It's written to be accurate but it's it's not a true story per se um but the movie if you want to get a feel for kind of the this early era that we're talking about of the persecutions i think it's set in the 17th century it's good i thought it was pretty good no i i would agree it was it was a good movie um sad i guess but in some ends but just the persecution yeah and i mean as far as oh that is a good warning i think it's definitely a rated r movie i believe and this is episode also, once we get into the World War II stuff, the day of the bombing, um, there's going to be some descriptions that are kind of graphic and a little bit disturbing, I think. So I would just hesitate to listen to this episode out loud around anybody who's sensitive to that or who's or young children or anything, because um, there are there's a lot of horrible injuries that are just kind of a necessary part of that story, just so you're aware. So now let's get into, are you going to get into the so now the, the war, like the Sino-Japanese war and all that stuff, or are you just going to give like a quick overview? Yeah, just quick. Okay. So as we mentioned, the cathedral's made, finished, I think, 1925. Then um, 1933, Japanese militarists basically pull off kind of a, they, they drag the country into an invasion of area of northern China called Manchuria. They rename it Manchukuo. And it's sort of part of like a, an attempt to help Japan like recover economically after the depression. It's also just they have this sense of of larger destiny to lead Asia. It's the beginning rumblings though of what's going to become the Sino-Japanese War, which really breaks out in July 1937. And from 1937 until 1941 the united states is at least officially not in that war while the chinese and japanese are are fighting and japan's kind of menacing the british empire around the the pacific area and as you know from or hopefully from 1939 onward world war ii breaks out in europe between germany and the allies of france and britain and, and eventually russia for the allies right so then in 1941, on December 7th, you have the attack on Pearl Harbor. And that's when, after that, the United States gets involved in the war. Kind of an interesting side note is that at Nagasaki, they were since they were like the seaport that, like Lily said, is at a far sort of southern end of the island, the main islands of Japan, they were kind of a jumping off point for China. But they were also important for producing armaments. Um, they had a Mitsubishi uh, torpedo factory and shipyards there. And actually, the at Pearl Harbor, I, I'll get past this. It's just a, a random trivia. But at Pearl Harbor, there was especially shallow water, and they had to plan for the fact that their torpedoes, when they dropped those, were going to need to be modified to be able to go in that water. And, and the then, special torpedoes were built there at yeah. the Urakami I, I don't factory. Think, yeah, I don't think that's complete trivia because uh, – it's why they're going to be on the list of targets, Carly. Yes. yes, that's what I was going to say. Not specifically because of Pearl Harbor, but because there's this, the Mitsubishi Metalworks Torpedo Factory yeah, and shipyards. and the Urakami side of town, so. Yeah, and it kind of tells you also the Urakami side of town is kind of the, 
it's not like the nice side of town. I guess I wouldn't say it's like a slum or something, but it's, it's where, right. It's, it's considered sort of an industrial area where like the, the people who work there are, you know, they're known to be like workers. They're the type of people who would be factory workers. Yeah. And also as like the Christians, they're kind of a disadvantaged, you know, minority. It's sort of viewed with suspicion. Yeah. So at this point in time, and it's, it seems to have stayed consistent as is um, when I talk more about the aftermath, but uh, the Japanese, compared to the Japanese population, this is just 1% or less of yes. the population. So. And even today, they are still, I think, only about 1% of the population. <laughs> and I, just a, other, the other background is that there's, so there's, I think, about 40% of the country is considered Buddhist. And another 40% is the traditional religion of Japan, Shinto. And there's maybe some overlap there. But suffice to say, Christians are a very, very small minority. And actually, they're being viewed with suspicion in the kind of the months before the end. Um, like political military police come and are interrogating the local priest about, you know, whether they're they're faithful and, and are praying for the emperor to win the war. And um, they're just under suspicion as being possible, like fifth columnists in case the, the Westerners invade. They're worried about, you know, are these these Christians, are they really, really loyal to Japan? And I think I don't think there I ever read anything that said that they were even potentially, you know, anything other than patriotic supporters of the war, which, you know, I know that the S versus them looking back like uh, we don't like that. But for at the time, they were there. There doesn't seem to have been any like undercurrent of actual treachery justifying the suspicions. But anyway. All right. So then we we're, we'll talk about August 9th. Yes. Well, so immediate, immediate background to August 9th. So the United States had been developing an atomic bomb. It kind of wasn't understood what that would be other than just a really big bomb. And they had started these campaigns of firebombing Axis cities, like really famously Dresden, Dresden in Germany. And in March of 1945, they firebombed Tokyo with B-29s, which are these new long-distance bombers, and they figure out how to use them in a really horrible night attack. Kills probably 100,000 people, or thereabouts, 80 to 100. So these long-distance bombers, now that they've captured islands, chains that are really close to Japan or within distance of these long-range bombers, they're able to start these massive bombings of Japanese cities. So... They've been perfecting these bombing techniques. And meanwhile, though, in Europe, on May 8th, Nazi Germany surrenders. They've been developing the atomic bomb. The war in Japan, or with Japan, is still going. And in the summer of 1945, there's this horrible battle on the island of Okinawa. And so they're looking at maybe they'll use this bomb to try to end the war in Japan, is the, the traditional narrative. On August 6th, the first bomb is dropped on the city of Hiroshima, or Hiroshima, however you want to say it. I think you, you heard it as Hiroshima, mm-hmm. right? That happens, and the word kind of trickles out, but it's not really recognized what has occurred immediately, because it's obviously... But one thing that we have to remember, too, is that it's not like they had cell phones or anything like that. Even telegrams would take a while sometimes, and especially during wartime, it's not like... Things were um, given to people, like notices were given right away. So this is literally happens two days before, right? Yes. I mean, that's about how much time the, yeah, maybe August 6th, August 9th to two and a half days. Two and a half days, yeah. And also remember that there's not really freedom of the press in wartime Imperial Japan. They're not allowed to talk about the fact that Hiroshima is basically gone, which it was. On top of that. There were flyers that were dropped during this time, but at the same time, some of them were uh, kept away or taken away by the people. And um, You mean from the people by the police? Yeah, but also I need to eventually talk about that day, how they were flyers, but there had been such practices that the, not everybody took it as seriously. Okay, so during this time, they had been doing different air raid warnings and because so many cities had been bombed. During this time. And so that's what they were thinking was going to happen to Nagasaki as well. That it would be a target for bombing. And it had been in some areas already. But because of that, it was constant. The, the town was in constant, um, how should I say, not like cried wolf preparedness, but kind of. They had been 
constantly having the people go in bomb shelters every so often. And so when this day came, not everyone took the um, raid as seriously. Yeah. Though, actually, right before the actual dropping of the bomb, I think. So the bomb actually gets dropped at 11.02 a.m., I think. At 10 a.m., there had been an air raid warning, and people had gone kind of to their stations and to the air raid shelters. And then they got the all clear, and they all came out again. So there were actually some people who were close by some air raid shelters when this next plane comes over. But it's sort of not, it doesn't look like a big air raid because it's only like, I think two planes are actually the ones that are there. Um, The one plane with the bomb and then one that's like an observation sort of plane. Um, So, you know, looking at the sky, you might get scared, but you might also be sort of confused by the fact that there's not hundreds of B-29s in the air. It's just two by themselves. But anyway, at 11 a.m., just about. Yeah, and most of the Catholics actually during this time were getting prepared for the Ascension. Uh, or is it the Assumption? assumption. The, feast the, of assumption. the Assumption. Yeah, the Feast yeah. of the Assumption. Which was coming up on August 15th. Yeah, and there was actually, I think, a couple dozen Catholic parishioners were at the Immaculate Conception Cathedral at this time, along with maybe two priests. Um, in the area of the city, there's also, I think, a Catholic school that had... Um, Catholic nuns at it, and there was um, a hospital um, yeah. that we'll talk about, and then there was the neighborhood and the factory. So that's sort of, and there's a river going through the area as well. When the bomb gets dropped, it goes pretty close between kind of the factory and the cathedral. The Mitsubishi factory. Yeah. So the cathedral gets completely destroyed. It has like some walls standing, but what people kind of describe immediately seeing is a there's this blinding flash of light they basically you had time to hear the planes overhead you may see the giant bomb fall out which was uh they it was nicknamed the fat man because it was a very big round bomb and they see this kind of bluish white blinding flash if you saw it you probably got bad burns because the radiation immediately comes out then there was this giant rush of wind as like all the energy gets released all the air from the center of the explosion gets pushed out there's people describe kind of a few minutes of total chaos as that's happening. Then there's the opposite effect of like all the air gets sucked back into the vacuum. And meanwhile, the heat set everything on fire and buildings are getting torn down. There's a lot of descriptions of people having their clothes torn off their bodies by the force of this blast. And then a lot of cases, unfortunately, like also skin gets torn off. And there's a lot of horrible accounts of people walking around with large amounts of skin hanging off their bodies. That's a really common part of the the survivor narratives in the immediate aftermath of this. Anything you want to add to that part? No, I just I just wanted to add that what we have to remember is that also another thing is that Nagasaki was not the intended first target. So yeah, Nagasaki was not the first intended target of this mission. So they had a list, I think of five cities that they were choosing off of and um the original uh, target for that day, that mission, was going to be a city called Kokura. It had a big armaments factory. When they get when the plane gets there, they are not able to see through the clouds and smog and smoke. And there had actually, I think it had been a previous nearby air raid that had a lot of smoke that had blown over. And so they, when they get there, they can't see the target. And the orders are, don't drop the bomb if you can't see the target. So they circle over a couple times. There's also, they're having a, f- a fuel problem on the plane. It's called the boxcar is the, the name of the, the B-29 that has the bomb. And they're, they're worried about running out of fuel. So they call off the mission as far as Kokura and move on to their secondary target that was in range, which is Nagasaki, because of the, uh, the shipyards and the factory there. Even when they get to Nagasaki, there's actually a lot of cloud cover. And they're, they're starting to get nervous that they're not going to be able to drop it there either. But they see, I think, like a sports field or an arena or something through the, a break in the clouds. They kind of pick that as the target, and, um, and they let, let go of the bomb. And unfortunately, it happens to be that it's not really over Nagasaki downtown proper as far as uh, – I mean, unfortunate for the people that get it actually hit directly. They end up dropping almost directly on top of the Urakami neighborhood where – uh, these people that we're going to talk about live. 
And Nagasaki itself, down near the the downtown, down near the water, actually doesn't really get all that damaged. And also it helps that Nagasaki, unlike Hiroshima, is not a big flat area. It's a valley. Um, it's kind of enclosed by these mountains. So there's areas that are really pretty close to the the center of the bomb that don't get impacted because they're shielded. So another thing to keep in mind about this area is that it's where a lot of the foreigners are as well. Um, so any uh, workers who were captured in China or anything like that um, are also here. And then... Yeah, I think uh, there's actually... This isn't going to be part of the episode, but I think there's even some like Dutch and... Australian POWs that were near enough for the for the blast. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to keep have that in a. It's also as like an aftermath. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, good side note. So we're gonna talk about a few specific people, kind of by way of describing what is going on under the mushroom cloud at this point. The plane, by the way, um, we'll note, and we can talk a little bit more about it later. Was also piloted by a Catholic who was named um, Major Charles Sweeney. And even though he's a major, he was only 25. But he pilots that mission and um, later on becomes a general. And they barely make it back to the, the airfield on Okinawa before they almost crash land and run out of fuel. And it's a really harrowing story. We can talk a little bit more about it after this, uh, what his kind of his views are on the whole thing. But it's sort of ironic that this Catholic community that's pretty unique in Japan gets bombed by another Catholic soldier in the war. But underneath the you know the rising mushroom cloud which you know it looks kind of just like a cloud in photos but apparently at the time it was like changing all kinds of different really violent bright colors and it was like hurt to look at it like it was bright red and then it turned like purple and it was just a really disconcerting thing to see obviously okay so we mentioned that the sort of a hilly area and on one hill there's kind of a university hospital campus, and there's some buildings that are concrete and some buildings are wooden. The wooden buildings get immediately blown away. But in one of the concrete buildings, or reinforced stronger ones, is a radiologist whose name is Dr. Takashi Nagai. Or in Japanese, you know, they put the last name, the family name first. So Nagai Takashi, you'll read sometimes. Dr. Nagai actually has a open sainthood cause, and he's really kind of the, his story is the reason we're doing this episode, because we found a book randomly in a bookstore from Ignatius Press called A Song for Nagasaki that's about, that's about his life. And we'll, we'll go back and tell a little bit more detail about his conversion story and where he fits in to this whole sequence of events from the 1930s through after Bath, because he becomes very famous for his interpretation and his his books that are about this the bombing but anyway when it happens when the bomb gets dropped he's in his office at the campus um, or at the hospital and his uh basically this blast of air comes through and everything's thrown into chaos and swirling around and he kind of he wakes up and he's um in rubble and he has a very bad head injury um that is going to continue bleeding throughout the course of the day and give him a lot of trouble in the subsequent days he hears a nurse uh, next door in an office who's screaming that she's in hell because she's looking out the window and seeing the completely devastated burning landscape with bodies and cars crushed and all this horrible stuff. Eventually, though, that nurse makes her way out and is able to get some, some other people together and they climb into his office and he's able to get free and they start organizing um, as best they can the kind of the patients and the wounded who are starting to filter in or trickle in. There's a lot, there's an overwhelming number of dead people at this point and wounded and dying. And there's not really that many people left from the hospital to help. Yes. And so one of the people I read is not a Catholic who also supposedly worked under Nagai, which is Dr. Um, Yoshida. And they were saying that during this time, they just didn't, nobody could have predicted nor knew how to answer to this chaos. Yeah. And they had actually, they had tried to stockpile medical materials, you know, supplies, and, you know, they had all their equipment there at the hospital and everything is just destroyed. I mean, it's, it's, they go into one room, but there was a storage room for all these, these materials that should have been there, supplies that should have been available for the emergency and everything's been shattered and is, you know, it's on fire. Everything's lost. 
So it's just that they really have hardly anything except for just like their medical knowledge at this point, and a lot of them are wounded also. But Nagai describes all this stuff afterwards in his his really famous book called The Bells of Nagasaki. And there's a really good chapter that I liked that is about the the teenage nurses. Somehow, I guess the adrenaline gives them like a lot of strength and they're carrying out all these patients. Um, And Jake bringing up that there's teenage nurses, uh, we have to remember too that during this time, a lot of the teenagers were working. So one of the teenagers that I also found out was working at the Mitsubishi Mitsubishi. Mitsubishi factory as a teenager because at this time a lot a lot of the people or the men were out yeah they've been kind of fully mobilized so the students are now the workers the workers have become the soldiers um nagai had also been in the army for like three years before this um and uh, anyway but yes teenagers everywhere and it, the staff are pulling themselves together and the um, they're pulling the patients out of the hospital slowly, and I think eventually they move them up onto a hillside that's kind of above the, all the burning buildings, because there's at this point there's a fire that's spreading kind of everywhere, but especially the hospital itself is catching on fire. At some point, they, they there's like a patient who's left who's saying that he won't be moved without a stretcher. He's supposed to have really bad arthritis or something, and the uh, staff come down and they tell Dr. Nagai, like, this guy is not, he's not coming with us. Should we go back in for him? And the fire's getting too bad. And the guy says, no, um, you're going to get killed. I'll take responsibility. Let's go. Because they couldn't, they were concerned about one thing, the radiology clinic that had all this, some sort of x-ray materials that were going to be toxic once they caught flames. And he was worried about explosions. The fires were, I mean, supposedly just reaching really monumental proportions. The air was becoming difficult to breathe. They felt like they needed to get out of there. But there was a lot of these incidents that people look back on later and regret because they wonder, like, should we have saved that person? Would we have gotten killed too? And this kind of this is sort of like a, a theme that Nagai explores later. But anyway, they run for it. They make it to this hillside, and the, the doctors and nurses and the patients are kind of gathering together. Nagai makes a flag out of a sheet and his blood, like a, a Japanese flag with the you know the red circle in the middle, and that was pretty hardcore. Uh, he knew from <laughs> it was just this really dramatic gesture. I didn't get, see that coming, um, but he knows that they need kind of a rallying point from his times in desperate situations in China uh, with the military, and um, they rally around that flag, and the survivors kind of trickle in. The guy's family. His, his kids had been moved to the country, but his wife was at home, he, he thought, um, which was unfortunately pretty close to the cathedral. He kind of watches the, the crowds coming in to see if she's going to come in. Her name's Midori, and he never sees her. And eventually at one point he just realizes she's dead, and that's, that's hard. He was, so far he had kind of resisted the urge to go run off to look for, for her in the ruins. But And I was... And that's the story that I came across from several of the stories that I had read is that people were just coming to their senses much later. The first thing wasn't, I have to go find such and such person or such and such relative. They tried, but a lot of their injuries just caused them to be very, uh, just to be a little slow of their um, understanding of what happened. Well, a lot of them were getting sick. They're waking up some amount of time later. They don't know what's happened. In some instances, I know the guy describes one relative or neighbor who says they come over the hillside coming back from the countryside to Nagasaki and they see everything on fire. And they realize, oh, there's no point even looking. Everybody's dead. And they were right to some extent. I mean, unless the person was happened to not be in the neighborhood for some reason, they probably... I mean, he says that 9 out of 10 people, if they were at home anywhere near the palm, they died. And that's that just was the reality. And also, like, one person fights their way through the flames and stuff, and it's, the ground itself is too hot to walk on to get back to the neighborhood, really, within, like, a day of this happening. But anyway, that evening, they're on the hillside, and the guy sees the cathedral burning. Some, a nurse later says that she hears singing in Latin, and the next morning she finds... 
a bunch of nuns who were horribly burned and are dead by the by a stream or by the river. They realized that they had been singing to keep their spirits up as they died. There's a similar story about the Catholic schoolgirls who were trapped in a burning building that they also sang. And all this kind of becomes for Nagai religiously significant for interpreting the event later. Um, another person I wanted to talk about, though, is uh, named Ozaki Tomei. I think is actually before um, he becomes a Franciscan monk, he, his name was Tagawa. He was 17, and he was working in the um, torpedo factory. I think he was actually in like an underground protected area, like a tunnel that they would work in. They called it the tunnel factory. He says when the bomb gets dropped, all the lights go off. They hear this huge boom. And when the Navy officer, who I guess was kind of presiding over their work, their supervisor tells them, okay, everybody out. They come out and they see everything's destroyed. He initially gets told to help carry a wounded girl who was from the rubble. But then when they, um, I don't know, something happens, a plane flies over or something, and they, they all kind of just drop her and run for it which he feels ashamed about later. But it takes him five hours to work his way home. He's um, His family is actually, they're descendants of the secret Christians, the hidden Christians. His father dies when he's like 10. He has some sort of illness, and his mother brings him back to Nagasaki and prays for him at this shrine that's in the mountains uh, associated with one of the martyrs of Nagasaki. Anyway, he grows up in a Catholic home and with just his mother. So... He's from this Urakami area and has these deep roots in the Catholic community. He works his way home. It takes him five hours, even though he only lives like 30 minutes. Along the way home, he also encounters this guy who he had had an argument with at the factory. They were going to fight later. And the guy is, <laughs> it's, it sounds silly, but the guy is horribly injured and has like his bowels coming out. And Ozaki can't resist saying, oh, you're done for. And the guy kind of curses and he, leaves, he abandons him there. As he's working his way home, he's kind of trying to avert his eyes from all the wounded and dying. And he, when he's wading through the river uh, for some reason to get back, this kid who's maybe about 10 years old grabs his leg and asks for help. And he shakes him off and says, someone else will help you, and abandons him too. When he gets to his house, there's nothing really left. He can't find his mother's body. He never does. And he does find her rosary that's all burned up, and that's pretty much all he's able to salvage. He eventually makes his way to a monastery that was founded by a Polish uh, Franciscan named Maximilian Kolbe, uh, who you may have heard of because he's a canonized saint now. At the time, nobody had known in Japan that he had been killed in Auschwitz, but he goes there and the, the monks give him shelter and food, and eventually he discerns that he wants to enter that community, and he becomes a monk, and uh, he actually lives to be like 93. That's getting into the aftermath, but all in the course of this day, he goes through this horrible experience of kind of being faced with his own unwillingness to help all these people and all this fear and desperation. This is kind of just a really, you know, it was a life-changing day, obviously. Like with Nagai, he, he has a lot of regrets somewhat about how he treated people in the chaos right after. Most of the people that I had read from were not Catholic, but um, the author who I read from who does... Uh, um, the book is Nagasaki. Yeah, Life After Nuclear War. Um, she she tried to focus because, um, as we'll probably speak here in not too far along, that a guy is somebody that the Western culture really holds up in terms of how Nagasaki should be viewed. The person I read wanted to step away from the Catholic community and talked more to Buddhists and stuff. And more, most of the people she talked to, besides Dr. Yoshida, uh, were teenagers. And most of these teenagers are also struggling to find, or children, I guess one of them's like a preteen, but uh, as Jake said, most of them struggled after the bombing to get back home and see what was left, who was left, in their homes and um, were badly injured. From I mean, I mean, we're talking about like burns. Uh, one one little boy who him and his friends decided to play hooky. When as we had mentioned before, they were supposed to go to a, a bomb shelter, and he 
he just him and his friends decide to go play hooky instead of going going to the shelter like everyone else um but anyways so this kid is is up in the hills already but he still gets badly burned so badly burned that on his way home he had to stop they couldn't they couldn't walk anymore because the sun and the heat was just burning they had no longer a layer of protection which is your skin is a protection from the rest of your body and so um yeah it, it's it's amazing to me i think that a lot of these people do survive but i guess now we'll probably get into the aftermath and so for me what i will say like the immediate aftermath is not these people are being transported to different areas um like the hospitals and things or different little pitch tents there's like first aid areas that they try to create to help these people. I was going to say, like, for I know that, for instance, I think it takes like two days for the actual government, army, medical people from outside Nagasaki to come and kind of relieve the hospital staff from caring for all the wounded. So that at that point, but it's like he, a day or two later, and the guy is free even, to go it's home. It's not even. I. It's not even like. Isn't it even the U.S. comes and like tries to also start. They are there, I think the U.S. Army medical people get there at about a month later. As we can mention later, the actual, the crew, some of the members of the crew of the boxcar actually come with the Army um, to Nagasaki at that point. But the, I think at that point, there's, it's already, there's been some Japanese government. And also, a lot of people disperse to the hills. And Nagai talks about in the days and weeks after, they're kind of just traveling around finding injured people all over the countryside who are being sheltered by different farms and villages and um, they're doing what they can to kind of comfort people. So one thing I want to point out is that, I mean, it takes some families several days to find their wounded because some of these people are so wounded that they're unrecognizable. Um, We're talking about the living. Yeah, this is the living. Uh, Unfortunately, with the bodies... You know that there's a sometimes there were instances where people were fighting over a body because they thought that no this is my daughter or this is no this is the husband or you know they would be unsure just the corpses were un- unrecognizable and so there's there's guesswork involved like Nagai finds Midori her body in their home and it, he also finds her rosary melted and is able to salvage that but. I, I mean, they're able to, they kind of guess who's who based on like the size of the body and where it's found. But there's instances where people are pretty sure afterwards that people probably took bodies that weren't even their family members and buried them because it just wasn't that or easy. Or their ashes, really, because some of them were just ashes. There was a lot of cremating going on after this, too, because mm-hmm. it just wasn't possible to, to, to do a lot of burials. Mm-hmm. So, on top of the fact that there was days where they were just trying to find even survivors, um, it would happen, like, a couple weeks later that um, family members who did survive all of this started dying of radiation illness. So, one of the girls uh, was Nagano, and she, um, she was working at the Mitsubishi factory, and uh, it took a while for her family to find her a couple of days. Um, and even after they found her, sh- she um, had glass in the back of her, in her back, and taking pieces of it would h- harm her. And she was just screaming and didn't think she was going to survive it. But her story is particularly sad because she had two younger siblings who were sent off by her parents to the grandparents further away from Nagasaki. However, she dearly missed her siblings that she begged them, begged her parents to bring them back. Her parents agreed as long as her siblings wanted it too. Well, she goes, this is like maybe months before the bombing, and she goes to get her siblings back. They didn't want to come back to Nagasaki. But she takes them anyway out of her selfish want of 
wanting her family together. Well, that's how she tells it afterwards. Well, yes, that's how she tells it afterwards. They all survived, technically. She was the last one to be found. However, weeks later, her siblings, her two younger siblings, die of radiation. Yeah. And, and the reason I'm talking about her... Her story in particular is because there is, as we're going to get into it here, there's this thing called survivor's guilt that happens. And then the father also passes away from radiation illness. So there's there's quite a bit of sad stories along of those who survive. Well, all of their stories are pretty sad. Yeah. Nagai has another book called We of Nagasaki where he tells the stories of different from different perspectives of like his neighbors and family members. So it's like the, the same day over and over again, but it's their, their vantage point. And there's so many of these instances of like, you know, people either choosing to not immediately look for relatives or hearing about someone who did go look for relatives and then who died and, or thinking that they found, saw someone that they knew and ignored them and then getting confused because someone else said, no, I saw that person somewhere else. And it's just to get, it becomes a really confusing situation for the survivors because they don't know if they deserve to survive because they, they're like, should I have done more? You know, did I live because I didn't go looking for my mom or because, or did that guy, you know, they, sometimes they, there's one story that was kind of stuck with me that was, um, they saw this person who they was like an air raid warden. Like he had a job kind of during the air raid. He was supposed to go around and help. And this one woman sees him and another person says, no, he, I found his body. He was at home with his family. And it, it seems kind of clear in the telling, at least by a guy that this person wants to believe that this guy went home and died with his family. And that probably really what happened is that he was too confused and he didn't know what he was supposed to be doing. Cause it was, you know, there's nothing you could do, but he wasn't sure if he should have been in his post or what. So he probably wandered around and then died later of the radiation sickness or of burns. And there's just all this confusion over, you know, what was everybody supposed to do? And if you lived, what does that say about you? So like Lily was talking about, just the survivor's guilt. But anyway, in the... So I just want to quickly, before Jake gets into probably Nagai's point of view of this all, um, in my reading, it was because of Nagai's interpretation um there is this silence and it's supposed to be like a silent acceptance supposedly i think that is pushed the idea is pushed i don't think jake and i kind of like agree that we don't think nagai literally meant that it was just that something that was well, maybe we should stay. Let's let's okay. go ahead and get to whatever his, his interpretation is, and then maybe okay. it'll be less mysterious. Okay. <clears throat> so, in like November after afterwards, the community's pulled itself together enough that they have this requiem mass outside next to the ruins of the cathedral, and the guy gets chosen or invited to be kind of a speaker on behalf of the lay people because he's this educated guy from the community there. Um, and he gives he says to them basically that this was a providential event where the best and purest among them had to die as a sacrifice so that the the sins of humanity in World War II could be atoned for so that the war could end. And he points out that you know the war basically starts with America at the feast of the Immaculate Conception it was December 8th, I think, across the international dateline was when Pearl Harbor happened on December 7th in Hawaii. And um, it ends on August 15th, which is the Feast of the Assumption. So in his view, the the bombing of Nagasaki was kind of like the pure, worthy sacrifice that was kind of united with Jesus' suffering so that all these sins of World War II could be offered up with, and the world could could heal and this would never happen again and he was it was very much i think he was conscious of the fact of what he had seen in china and that the war wasn't just and that it it was also a way of coping with there are some people who are asking like what did my you know why did all these people have to die in nagasaki like why did my family have to die and he his answer that was basically because they were 
God was calling them home. They were they were better than us. And that sort of feeds into the survivor guilt, at least unintentionally. But it was his it was his answer to to why it happened. And like Lily said, that gets kind of it's not that the it's like inculcated by the Western by the American occupation or anything, but they his views are allowed to I be mean, published. What from from the book that I read, it wasn't just like the American control of some of the publications. It was also like the emperor and stuff, and the the Japanese government themselves also still holding control of the media and putting that point of view as a full force. You know, like this is. This is how we're answering to this. I mean, there was a way in which it's kind of helps salvage. It kind of eases the conscience as far as the Japanese as well. Yeah, because, I mean, the Japanese um, people were still, there was not much knowledge, even in Tokyo or anything. Even when some of these people were transported for, like, health issues and studies to Tokyo, um, they were seen as, like, just these kind of monster-looking people and not sure as to why that happened because it was censored. All those things were censored. The burns were very horrifying, but also the people are really afraid of the, the radiation and they're uncertain about what it means to have been anywhere near the bomb. And uh, they even, they get called, um, you said it's pronounced Hibaksha, right? Hibaksha, yeah. Yeah, it's, it looks like it's spelled Hibakusha, but it, Hibaksha, I guess. But there, it's the, the term that applies to the irradiated survivors of both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But they're basically, they're stigmatized after the war. As if you were near the blast, like you told me, you were reading about stories of women who men would refuse to marry them. Yes. Because they were worried about, like, oh, I don't know if you can have normal babies, right? That, and that was uh, rhetoric, too, that was thrown around, is that these people were, um, nothing was known as to what was going to happen. Would they be able to have children? Would the children become, become deformed? Kind of like, you know, how X-Men came to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're going to be mutants. Yeah. That's why Nagai is also really interesting, though, and I think part of the reason why he becomes famous is because he's a radiologist. He actually had leukemia before the bomb went off from the radiology work because he was it was really a pioneering new science. area of medicine, yeah, of, of science. And a lot of radiologists would get leukemia and would have injuries from radiation. So just to go back to what I was going to say, though, is so with this attitude and with the censorship, there is this kind of bubbling under the surface, um, anti-Nagai ideal. Um, well, as time goes on, yeah, people become feel like they're silenced or they feel like they're not able to talk about it if they don't agree with him because his, his, he's so, I, like I was saying, I think that part of it is that he he's very articulate and educated. He's kind of unusual for that area because, it, like we said, it's kind of the worker side of town. Whereas he is this doctor, he's a published scientist before all this stuff even happens. He knows all about the radiation science, so he can talk really intelligently about what actually happened with the bomb and with all the injuries and everything. He's, treat, he's firsthand seeing all this stuff scientifically. So he kind of puts himself forward as the spokesman, and he's the only... I mean, there's not that many of them. I mean, really, the survivors. So he, he becomes kind of the spokesman of the community, and a lot of people in the community, I think, were like, we didn't necessarily ask you to be the spokesman. So later on, as kind of feelings start to rankle during the Cold War and people start questioning, like, you know, was this a war crime? Like, and Hiroshima has a reputation for being much more vocal and activist about opposing nuclear warfare and about this bombing. Whereas Nagasaki, they kind of silently, like... So after, like Jake said, after some time, and especially in the 70s, um, there starts to be more talk of, like, Hiroshima... Uh, survivors and stuff start trying to speak up against war, especially because we're in the midst of the Cold War. You see two major players uh, still continuing to make nuclear weapons. And so in hearing the continuing of the Cold War, um, Hiroshima survivors start talking against the atomic bomb. And that in like leads a lot of these teenagers who grew up and actually became educated and started living, you know, 
living their lives after a while, after they've recovered, um, to start speaking against as well, start going against um, nuclear war and things like that. And then, like, saying, you know, starting talking about their story. Yeah, and it's intentionally, intentionally or not, I guess, people feel like they weren't able to say that the bombing was providential and was also wrong because they felt like those were mutually exclusive. So it, it takes really kind of until Pope John Paul II visits in 1981, I think, and he speaks at, at least he, I know he gives a speech at Hiroshima that was quoted in this one book I read called Dangerous Memory, where it's, uh, he says that war is evil and basically tells him the bombing was, was evil. It was a, you know, it was just a horrible act rooted in humanity, not in, it wasn't God doing this to them. And that gives people a little bit of breathing space to be like, okay, that's kind of what I thought too. Now that the Pope says it. And I remember also Nagai had passed away of leukemia back in like 1951. He didn't live through all of this other, you know, yeah, like were, Ozaki Tomei lives to be 93. He gets to go talk, have his views develop and talk about all this stuff for years. Yeah. So they were hoping, I think the one thing that Jake and I agree is that Nagai probably was hoping that after this talk that the, the, and after these sacrifices that there would be an understanding and stop to nuclear warfare yeah and he was actually very discouraged by the korean war which starts before he dies um i mean discouraged in the sense of like he he was hoping that there would never be any more wars but that that hope gets dashed so that's kind of the big story the whole arc of it isn't it except for the rebuilding of the cathedral we didn't talk about that so the cathedral you know was in ruins obviously it's you can see pictures of it if you Google it, and we're actually gonna the uh, show art is gonna be a drawing of the stained glass window in the new cathedral that shows what the ruins of the cathedral looked like. But at Hiroshima, there was this building called um, I think they call it the Atomic Dome. It's it's what's left of this building that had a dome, and it's these ruins that they preserved as a symbol of the bombing and as like a peace memorial. So the in Urakami, the city wanted to do the same thing, potentially, with the ruins of the cathedral. And I think it takes them all the way until about 1955 or 58 to decide that, okay, we'll let the, the community rebuild this church and we won't keep it as a memorial. And that, I have heard, it remains even a controversial decision because they lose this these ruins. I think it's kind of begging the question to call them ruins because that already puts them into some sort of like makes you think they're this historic old building that kind of signify the history of the whole community. Whereas you can tell in the narratives of the Catholic survivors that seeing the, the church burn and destroyed with their friends and family in it was very disturbing. Yeah, because they're, they're like Jake had mentioned earlier, there were people attending mass during this time. Well, I think they were there for confession, but I mean, there was yeah. people, there were worshipers there and, you know, and, this is also not an old church. This has only been built in like 1925. And it's then it gets knocked down like 20 years later. And so the, and it was also it was built by people who were persecuted by the Japanese government or by their, you know, by their families, their descendants. So it just was seemed really ironic, I think, to some people and to me that then the government wants to kind of take the whole community wants to take ownership of this site and say that, you know, you can't do whatever you want with it. You can go have a church somewhere else. Uh, we want this as a peace memorial. I don't know. My understanding is there's also, there were Catholics who were like, oh, that could be an okay idea too. But under the circumstances, a, a just, lot of people yeah, wanted to rebuild. Just, yeah, disagreements amongst the community. And so anyway, with the aftermath, actually, you... Not too long ago, like in 2008 and things, I believe... Um, one of the survivors, Tanaguchi, from what I read, was actually speaking in Washington, and this is how the author decided to develop the 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 book was because she had heard him speak in D.C. regarding. And you're talking about the book Nagasaki: Life After Nuclear yes. War. Yes. So the survivors started talking about this, and especially in the '90s, I think there was more talk about what happened. And because there was censorship even within the United States, like reports were were taken from the Japanese government and hidden away by MacArthur. Dun, dun, dun. Um, MacArthur anyway. is the general who becomes the 
military commander of the after the war in, in Japan. Um, so anyway, th- things are hidden for quite some time, but then, like, as the 90s start to come, there start to be um, memorials, there start to be talks, and things like this, especially, I think, you know, since the Cold War supposedly ended, you know, or, yeah. I mean, I shouldn't say supposedly, ended with, <laughs> you know, the falling of... It's not get controversial. Yeah. <laughs> I think also the time passage of time might have helped too because I read at least one quote that said this guy, the survivor was saying he didn't want to mention that he was from Nagasaki and that he was there, you know, he was impacted by the bomb because the next question might be, oh, did your family work at the torpedo factory where the, you know, the torpedoes that were used at Pearl Harbor were made and stuff? And they didn't want to be associated necessarily with the war effort after the war for some time. Well, not just that, like, a, like the Hibakusha you know the survivors were yeah but i mean he was saying even besides the stigma of being possibly tainted by radiation you didn't necessarily want to say that yeah we we worked at the armaments factory oh okay um because actually there and there's a scene that there's a movie that's about nagai that was produced by ignatius press oh um, let's talk about that movie really quick yeah so but, yeah go ahead, go ahead say the well movie. the thing i was gonna say is there's a part where his Nagai son says that this family was telling him that they all deserved what happened to them because they supported the war and this other family had gone into the hills or something and had refused to be part of it. And, um, but anyway, so there might be some, that's again, that's the survivor guilt of like, Oh, to what extent are we somehow blameworthy in all this? And there's a, that's actually kind of a good scene in that movie, which is not that great, but we can go ahead and talk about it. Okay, so the movie just, it's its not that it's not great. It's just it takes a more artistic approach in films. And that's okay. It's like an independent artistic film. Yeah, it's um, kind of like half documentary, half, like, it feels kind of like docudrama. I wouldn't even say it's a documentary, really. Not documentary, I mean. Because I, I, one thing I will warn, what's the name of the movie? It is called All That Remains. So the movie, I will say... You have to know Nagai's story before you even watch the film. Yeah. Because it's not, there's not really full explanations. And there is actually the author of his biography, right? Is that? Yeah, it, Father Paul Glenn, I think is his name, who wrote the, um, I mean, a, a song for Nagasaki. There's a little short interview with him, sort of, sort of documentary thing where he tells the story a little bit more cohesively. So I I would highly recommend if you if you want to watch and kind of know about Servants of God Nagai to watch that first and then you can rewatch the film. And we haven't really said his story and I think the context of talking about the film we could just talk give the brief outline of his story. So he was not he wasn't from Nagasaki. He wasn't from a Christian family. He was from a Shinto family and a town that was strongly connected with that with Shintoism, a shrine there. He was from the samurai class, so he was at really probably a different social echelon than social background than a lot of the people in the community he ends up in. And he ends up in Nagasaki to go to medical school. He ends up in radiology because he has a, a sickness that leaves him deaf in one ear where he can't use a stethoscope. And anyway, though, he ends up drafted into the military, I think twice, and goes to China. He lives with a family that is they're traditionally they're the leaders of the hidden Christian community there, the Moriyamas. And he marries their daughter, who's a teacher named Midori Moriyama. And I think I'm remembering their last name. I hope I'm not mistaken. But anyway, he, he falls in love with her. He converts to uh, Christianity over the course of years of kind of contemplating whether he's going to be a purely a materialist scientist sort of believer in progress, or if he's going to accept that there's more to life. And his experiences then in China or this, you know, it's just a harrowing ordeal from 1937 to 1940-ish. I think he's he's like a surgeon, a doctor with the, the Japanese military in China. And that's kind of controversial potentially, but he tries to do what he can to help also civilians there. Um, and there's, if you read the book, A Song for Nagasaki, it gets in all the details of some of his memories of how, how rough that was. He comes back with this consciousness of how bad the war is out there and how, you know, what could happen to Nagasaki and tries to help prepare by stockpiling medical supplies and everything. 
he gets leukemia doing his radiology work. The bombing happens. After the bombing, he brings his kids back from the countryside where they had been safe with a grandparent. And they build this kind of hut and live in the wasteland, which a lot of people were making little like lean-tos and huts and trying to do what they could to kind of slowly come back and rebuild. And he becomes really famous as this sort of holy man um, because he's stuck, basically bedridden with leukemia, and he's just writing all these books about his his opinions about what happened and their their spiritual significance and the how the community is all shattered by this nuclear war and how it should never happen again. And he gets visited by Helen Keller at one point. He gets visited by the emperor, and his his books are allowed to be published by the the occupation, you know, government. And he eventually dies in 1951. And so now he's got an open sainthood cause, and that's controversial, obviously, like for the reason we said, because sometimes people are saying he's, you know, he might have been wrong about his interpretation of Nagasaki. He did seem to be kind of a holy person. His death is kind of dramatic. He gets taken to the hospital. I think his son are praying next to him with his cross, and he reaches out and grabs a cross and just says, pray, and he dies. And that just really is intense. He was kind of almost in a tradition of like sort of Eastern mysticism too, like this idea of like you, you build a hut and you suffer and speak your wisdom to everybody. So that's Nagai, and he's looms over apparently every book and discussion of this subject. Yeah, I would, I would definitely say that. I think even, even those who, like I said, my book tried to stay away from the Catholic point of view, but because it was the Catholic population of Japan, it there's no going Maybe around because it's like it's so specifically associated with that that historic community yes so what did we learn from this <laughs> i mean i thought it was really poignant like finding i didn't realize about the connection with maximilian colby before this and if you don't know who he is he was a polish priest who um basically traded places with a man who was going to get killed at auschwitz um, he was at Auschwitz also as a prisoner, and he steps forward and offers to die in that guy, at this family man's place. And um, he was canonized by John Paul II. And actually, Nagai, when he's um, he's in a coma after the bombing, he says, at least according to Paul Glenn, he has this feeling that he should pray for Maximilian Kolbe's intercession because he actually x-rayed Maximilian Kolbe when he was in Nagasaki at one point. And... Um, they wouldn't have known that he was dead at this point or anything, but the guy recovers, and so it's possible that that's a miracle associated with Maximilian Colby. So I didn't realize that there was that connection, and it was interesting to me just to see kind of on both sides of this horrible conflict that there could be so much kind of common ground and blurring. You know, like, there's just, there's, it's just encouraging. There's, there can be good people on even both sides of World War II. And the, just to seeing, like, okay, Maximilian Colby was there, just because the Japanese were against the United States in the war doesn't mean it was, you know, there's all these irredeemably bad people. I, yeah, I think for me, it just, it's a reminder that to thoroughly understand history, you have to see both sides. It's not just one argument or one lens to look through. Um, and uh, I really, I almost, the I got the opposite feeling from Charles Sweeney, the pilot who dropped the bomb. Not that it was his fault that he was on the mission that dropped the bomb, but his he becomes a general, and later on he writes a book in the 90s, so 50 years after this, defending the decision to drop the bomb. And it's not that I don't think that's a valid viewpoint at all. It's just his attitude towards it was very much, of course it was necessary, of course it wasn't the wrong thing to do. And there's even this weird part where he describes their visit to Nagasaki, and 50 years later, he says they didn't see any bodies. But in a book where he was partly based on his interviews about the same visit back in the 60s that was written, it describes seeing piles of bodies and skulls. And he visits the hospital and they see the skeletons still in the beds and everything. Like it, it really resonates with what Takashi Nagai was describing the, the burning hospital and all the, the horrible stuff, because this is only a month after the bombing. And it's just interesting to me that, you know, 30 years later in the 90s he remembers it differently or tells it differently i thought that was kind of discouraging not that he's a bad catholic or a bad person i don't know him but that's all i know about him but it, i thought it was really interesting to find that there's you know catholics on both sides of this incident and that just all the different ways that people really wrestled with whether it was right or 
you know, how to think about it. Yeah, I know. Um, that, w- that was another interesting thing to see how many Catholics were actually connected with all of this. And then another thing that I just took from it is um, I-, I wanted to do a little bit more research to see if the Catholic population had increased or decreased since all of this. And it actually has held steady. So I think that in the bombing, like 30,000 people die and like 8,000 out of, I think, 12,000 Catholics in the community are killed or something like that. No, I'm talking about it just in like a general sense of just the numbers, the percentage numbers. Yeah. I, that's all they I mean. They continue to be like a percentage, one percent. Yeah, population. so it's just interesting that the, the population does continue to. And they did rebuild and they're still there. That was interesting for me to understand and know that there were Catholics in Japan. I mean, it's just not something that you, that I think the Western Catholics are very aware of. And like Jake said, you can actually visit the cathedral with the stained glass showing the wreckage after the bombing. And there's actually, you know, memorial where you can go find out what happened to the people of Nagasaki or the Urakami. I think also uh, Nagai's hut is still there. I think it's a museum. I don't know for sure. We haven't been there. So, I mean, this is, it may, I guess, not appear as fully Catholic history, but I feel like because of the population in the community there, it is Catholic history. And it is something for us to talk about because our, our churches, it just shows how big and diverse and how, how much there is in our church historical no, I, agree. I think it's a really i think it brings together a couple of really interesting threads and i mean it, he is a, a saint there's a saint involved in the story there's an open sainthood cause involved with the story catholics on both sides catholics fighting over a historic cathedral i'd say it's solid catholic history <laughs> <laughs> all right well hopefully for the next topic it won't take us much longer so i guess we're just gonna ask him i'd say we do i mean the one bona fide saint probably. yeah St. Francis Xavier. Oh, yeah, there's another saint in the story. Yeah. Okay, I was just saying the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, St. Francis Xavier, and St. Maximilian Colby. Please pray for us. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining us, and hopefully we'll have another episode sometime this year. (laughs)